This week, Jonah Energy makes tender offer for 2025 secured notes as part of out-of-court restructuring, Hertz to implement UK scheme of arrangement, Mallinckrodt debtors and UCC oppose appointment of official equity committee. And as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding. Later, we'll speak with LSTA General Counsel Elliot Gans about the potential effects of a Biden administration on the leveraged loan market. It's Sunday, December 6th. The Mallinckrodt debtors opposed the appointment of an official equity committee. The Buxton-Helmsley group had moved for such appointment. That motion had been joined by an ad hoc group of individual equity holders. The Official Committee of Opioid-Related Claimants, or OCC, the Ad Hoc Governmental Plaintiff Group, and the Multi-State Governmental Entities, or MSGE, joined the debtor's objection. The debtors argue that they are, quote, hopelessly insolvent and that equity holders are, quote, highly unlikely to receive any distributions. The debtors added that the appointment of an equity committee would only, quote, further deplete the debtor's assets. And the debtors maintain that equity holders' interests in maximizing the estate's value are aligned with the debtors' and creditors' interests, and thus sufficiently represented. In support of the ad hoc equity group, William Jeffers of the Griffin Group, in a declaration, had valued the equity in the debtors' specialty brand segment at between $989 million and $2.665 billion on a standalone basis, even if all non-opioid liabilities are assumed by that segment. Separately, the debtors filed a reply accusing the ad hoc first lien group and others objecting to their payment of RSA parties' fees and costs of playing, quote, a game of chicken with the Chapter 11 cases. While the objectors, quote, may be willing to jeopardize the RSA and significant progress made to date in these cases by asking the court to deny the motion, the debtors are not, the reply states. The debtors said they cannot, quote, afford to take the risk that the consenting groups terminate the RSA if their fees and costs are not paid, quote, in which case the debtors would be forced back to square one in a freefall bankruptcy case that, at minimum, would be significantly longer, more expensive, and would likely entail unwieldy negotiations among thousands of disparate parties. Jonah Energy, an ENP focused on Wyoming's Jonah Field, is offering to purchase $496 million of the outstanding principal amount of 7.25% senior secured notes G2025 for 98% of par, according to documents reviewed by Reorg. The tender, which expired December 23rd, is part of an out-of-court restructuring plan after the company missed a coupon in September and payments to remedy a borrowing-based deficiency in September and October. According to Jonah's offering memorandum, the company in March engaged Evercore as investment banking advisor, Alvarez and Marcel as financial advisor, and Vincent and Elkins as legal advisor. And in August, the company engaged with an ad hoc group of note holders represented by Hulihan Loki and Aiken Gump. As reported, Jonah obtained a forbearance from the RBL lenders and hedge counterparties after making a partial deficiency payment in September, which has since been extended to December 31st. The company subsequently, quote, facilitated discussions with and between the RBL agent and the ad hoc note holder group and the sponsors regarding, quote, mutually agreeable transactions. A restructuring support agreement was announced on November 13th with more with the support of 80% of unsecured note holders, 100% of RBL lenders and holders of more than 95% of Jonah's equity interests. The company sponsors are TPG and EIG. The note indenture requires the participation of at least 90% of bondholders according to an OM reviewed by Reorg. If this threshold is not reached, quote, the company will commence a prepackaged Chapter 11 case and pursue the in-court restructuring. According to Jonah's proposal, under an out-of-court scenario, 5% of equity would be available for subscription by eligible note holders, whereas no equity would be offered in a Chapter 11. The out-of-court restructuring also includes an $85 million rights offering backstopped by certain note holders, which would help fund a cash payment pay down to lenders under the company's RBL agreement. JP Morgan is the agent to the lender group. About $50 million of the company's borrowing base remains outstanding. U.S. car rental group Hertz on December 11th will appear before the English High Court for the convening hearing of its proposed scheme of arrangement, according to its practice statement letter dated November 30th. 
The company intends to implement a scheme based on its advisor's conclusion that other alternatives would likely provide reduced recoveries for the Hertz International Group's creditors. The scheme is scheduled to be sanctioned on February 5, 2021. The group is using the English law process to introduce new money, implement a debt exchange of its 2021 and 2023 notes, and bifurcate guarantee claims held by scheme creditors against the Chapter 11 debtor entities that guaranteed the notes from claims against the non-U.S. issuer and guarantors. Hertz would seek approval in the Chapter 11 cases to run an auction process for the severed U.S. guarantee claims and a determination that the claims would be allowed against each of the Chapter 11 debtors, quote, in an amount equal to the face amount of such notes converted into dollars as of the date of such order, not subject to reduction, offset, or defense as a consequence of any recovery on the international group claims. Separately, the group's bank facilities will be amended. The Hertz Scheme Company will also file a petition for recognition of the U.S. scheme under Chapter 15 of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code. The Hertz International Group consists of Hertz Holdings Netherlands and the Scheme Company, Hertz UK Receivables Limited, together with those entities which operate the European and Asian business of the group. An English law scheme requires the consent of 75% by value and 50% by number of creditors in each class in order to be passed. Once passed, subject to certain fairness and jurisdictional hurdles, this scheme will be binding on all scheme creditors. Back in Delaware, the Hertz debtors on Monday filed cleansing materials related to the proposed sale of the Donlin business. The cleansing materials include a summary of the business's historical financial performance, as well as projections for 2021 through 2025. On Wednesday, Governor-elect Pedro Pierluisi announced his first cabinet nominations, including Omar Morero, who would retain his role as executive director to the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority, and Francisco Perez as Treasury Secretary. Pierluisi said the FF chief would remain in his post, quote, to give continuity to the fiscal reforms and the government debt restructuring so that we can finally exit bankruptcy and begin the recovery we all need. He also lauded Perez's efforts to modernize the Puerto Rico Treasury Department through new technology and indicated that these efforts would also continue. Stressing the importance of exiting bankruptcy, Pierluisi credited Marrero with achieving for the Commonwealth a, quote, greater participation in the ongoing mediation process and debt restructuring negotiations. The Puerto Rico Aqueduct and Sewer Authority, or PRASA, has set December 29th as the proposed redemption date for some $1.41 billion of outstanding PRASA debt. According to conditional notices of redemption posted on the EMA Municipal Market website by fiscal agent Banco Popular de Puerto Rico. The redemption notices follow the November 25th release of a preliminary limited offering memorandum related to PRASA's proposed issuance of $1.4 billion in Series 2020A senior lien revenue refunding bonds. PRASA has not defaulted on its senior obligations and its $3.078 billion in outstanding senior bonds, according to the offering memorandum. Top red stories last week included... Cedril Partners enters Chapter 11 with support of ad hoc group of term loan B lenders. AMC Entertainment files prospectus for $844 million Class A common stock offering. Judge Masley grants plaintiff's motion to discontinue without prejudice New York State CERTA refinancing transaction litigation. Next, here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Well, good morning and greetings from Texas, where the brutal southern winter is fully upon us, meaning it's sunny and 47 degrees. Now, of course, the weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas are always a little, I don't know, hesitant in terms of activity, so let's see what we got. Monday, December 7th, there's a motion to appoint an equity committee in Malincrote. And in Revlon, there's a final pre-trial conference in the matter of City versus Brigade, the fat finger that launched a thousand billable hours, so to speak. Tuesday, December 8th, there's a sale hearing in Asena, and earnings no less, PetSmart, Chewy, Cons, and GameStop. Wednesday, December 9th, it's a trial of the century, mainly City versus Brigade, not the Kafka novel, which I have not read, and a hearing in Valaris, the rig contractor. Apparently, I didn't know this till recently, there was a Valaris in real life. He was an Ostrogoth warrior back in the day. There's also earnings from Hovnanian and UNFI, plus a virtual conference for iHeart. Maybe they will address my request for a station that combines Hank Williams, Led Zeppelin, Richard Wagner, Irish folk music, American 
Russian black metal, Ralph Stanley, Black Sabbath, Towns Van Zandt, and Guy Clark, but it's more likely they won't, which is a shame because that would make tons of money, don't you think? And Thursday, December 10th, stay relief hearing in Chesapeake, closing motion hearing in Oasis, and there's earnings from J. Jill and Academy Sports. And Friday, December 11th, looks like we cleared another week, folks, and how better to celebrate than with a nice can of Del Monte green beans. Del Monte reporting earnings today. There's also a second-day hearing in Gulfport and an evidentiary hearing in Extraction. Now, while that would appear to be it, there is one more thing. It's been a bit of an exciting year, and who knows what 2021 will bring. Well, you do, dear listener, or at least you have an idea, and we, meaning Reorg, would like to know. We'll be rolling out a survey this week, which will give you an opportunity to tell us exactly what you think about the state of things and where said state will be going next year, and we hope you will answer. And that's all from me. Back to New York. And next, we have LSTA's Elliot Gans, interviewed by Sarah Gefter and Jason Sanjana. Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah Gefter, Managing Director of Reorg Americas. I'm here with my colleague, Senior Legal Analyst and Editor Jason Sanjana. We have Elliot Gans, General Counsel and Chief of Staff of the Loan Syndications and Trading Association. And we're going to talk today about how the new administration and political environment might impact the loan market specifically the leverage loan market, and we'll also touch on uh, some bankruptcy impacts as well. Elliot and Jason, welcome. Um, So to kick things off, uh, Elliot, let's set the stage. Um, What do we know about the administration? What don't we know yet? What's still to be decided? Um, What are the key roles that the LSTA is most focused on? Sure. Uh, Thanks, Sarah and and Jason. Thanks for having me. Um, So let's start with a very brief description of what happened, what just happened, where we are, and what we're seeing. So obviously, uh, President-elect Biden is forming his his cabinet. Um, and we, despite all the noise around it, that's proceeding um, ahead. We're starting to see who he's selecting as his um, appointees. Um, particularly in the economic and financial side. Um, Congress is in an interesting position now. We have a, uh, a, a Senate that has 50 Republicans elected, 48 Democrats and two to be decided, which we'll talk about. The House is really interesting because you've got, um, I, think, I think it's gonna come out to around 222 Democrats and 213 Republicans, a much a much smaller a majority for the House. Um, so those will all have implications, which we'll talk about. Um, and the focus right now, as I said, is on what, what uh, President-elect Biden is doing. So what do we know so far? Um, it looks like a very typical Democrat establishment um, uh slate. Uh, We're not seeing very many serious progressives appointed. Janet Yellen is certainly very establishment. Um, A number of appointments were made this morning for Office of uh, 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 Budget Management Budget. And and again, nothing really out on the uh, very far left progressive side. it's, so I, I read, some, I, I read a, 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 a quote on, on Twitter this morning that it's the kind of uh, slate that Hillary Clinton might have uh, appointed four years ago. Um, so from our perspective, that's good. Um, and, you know, something I think that Wall Street, the, the, you know, the loan market can work with. Um, so uh, no, nothing particularly alarming so far. Um, so Elliot, uh, this is Jason Sanjana. Thanks for being here. Uh, hello. Um, one of the things, but as far as more generally, no matter what the administration is, what would be the most pressing regulatory items, legislative or administrative that you guys are watching as we, as we head into this term or, or any term in, in recent years? 
I think the 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 our perspective generally in an environment like this, in the you know the COVID, post COVID world, is just like a, just as you had a tremendous reverberations from the financial crisis. The question from you know and what we're what we're watching and concerned about is what can happen in the wake of the coronavirus. Um, and then you break that down, what could happen legislatively, and then what can happen administratively, and then really taking it down, what can happen in the banking agencies and the SEC. Um, one of the things, so, so, if you, if, so if you take a step back and we try to break that down into its component parts, what can happen legislatively and what are we looking at? start with the Senate. As I said, we have a 50-50 maximum. We have a 50-50 breakdown, Mm -hmm. in which case the Democrats would have control of the Senate. Um, The idea that in in that kind of environment, um, a lot of legislation could get done is kind of by the wayside. Um, Some of the things that we talked about, packing the court, Mm-hmm. getting rid of the filibuster were very worrisome because in that environment um, financial services regulatory legislation could get done mm-hmm. and as what happened in the financial crisis it's very hard to predict what can get done in a, an environment that's that's uh, reacting to a crisis um, risk retention came out of that the Volcker rule restrictions came out of that. We never anticipated things like that mm-hmm. back then. So it's hard to an- even anticipate what could happen in a post-crisis environment like COVID. I think that's more or less off the table from a legislative perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, because even with a 50-50 split where um, Vice President-elect uh, Harris has the tie-breaking vote and control is in is in the Democrats' hand. Um, you've got people people like Manchin, people like Cinema, mm-hmm. senators like that who are not going to do crazy things. And I I, I think that risk is pretty much off the table. That, that's interesting. So heading into the election, I mean, obviously there's been a ton written about the polls and the expectations versus reality. Um, do you feel like were you looking at a at a potentially likely outcomes that could have led to wide wide ranging um, regulatory reform and that, and now as you said those are off the table how how much does the outcome in Georgia the January fifth runoffs um, change your calculus what I'm hearing from you I think is that even the 50-50 setup with, with conservative Democrats um, and the way the Senate traditionally runs anyway is, is going to be um, not leaning strongly in any direction. But do you see any real breakout depending on whether the Democrats pick up those two seats? Yeah, so if you want to talk about, well, let's talk about what, what's likely to happen or what might happen. Sure. The answer to that is, if anyone tells you they know, they're lying. I was, I, I, we, we were thinking about asking you what you expected to happen in Georgia, but I felt like that wasn't fair. But well, I'll can, tell you can... what, in, in a normal world, what I think would have happened, I think in a normal world, there's a very high likelihood that the Republicans hold one or two of those seats. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the results, even in the, pre, in the, in the runoff, or in the, you know, the main election, um, Purdue won that that election by a pretty significant margin, um, and and uh, although he didn't make it to fifty percent, he he had, he had a pretty big margin. Um, and the same thing in the other in the in the Loeffler case, mm-hmm. um, Republicans won considerably more seats than the Democrats. So I think in the absence of the sort of anti-Trump vote. The likelihood would have been 
that the Republicans hold those seats, one or both, and probably both. Mm-hmm. And I kind of think it's binary. I think they're either going to hold one or they're going to hold both. Um, what's making it crazy is um, what uh, President Trump is doing in terms of his inability to face his loss. Um, and, uh, you know, lashing out against the governor, against the secretary of state, um, and creating this narrative that it, why should we vote? It's rigged and we're going to lose anyway. So if enough Republicans stay home because of that, you see an opportunity for the Democrats who are working this really, really hard, attracting a huge amount of money where they can win that election. So that's my assessment. There's there's so many different dynamics with this, and you know you saw in some of the southern races that the outside money and excitement actually hurt the Democrats, and so it's unclear how how the National Party will approach this election at, from that angle. And then I, I guess you also have the general dynamics of whether the election shakes out as a turnout or, or stay, you know, whether the driving forces are turning out people or, or people staying home. Um, so yeah, I think you're right that. Uh, I think this is all about, sorry, I think this is all about turning out the vote. Okay. It's entirely about turning out the vote. And if, if Trump succeeds in alienating some portion of his base, that would be more of a stay at home type of result. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, you know, they're sending, they're sending very mixed messages. They're saying you got to save Georgia. And at the same time, making crazy noises about, you know, the governor and it's all rigged. So why bother? So it's very hard to predict. I think Trump has a, uh, a rally somewhere in Georgia next week. It should be must, must see TV. Uh, <laughs> sure. Maybe the last one. Um, <laughs> so, uh, sorry, that was a pretty long detour on the, on the details of, of the Georgia race that we really don't know what's going to happen, mm-hmm. but how would that, uh, how does that actually shake shake out for what you guys think through as far as legislative agendas and um, and even I guess agency agendas too? To be honest. So so and they're connected. I think that that's a good point. What it will a a, a, a Senate controlled by the Democrats will give um, President like Biden much more leeway in his appointments, and that's where it's important. That's where it's most important. Um, if, if McConnell is running the Senate, um, he's going to have to be much more cognizant of who he, President, President like Biden will have to be much more cognizant of who he can get through confirmation process. Um, and that has ramifications for sure. Um, so that's really the key point, I would say, particularly again, from the financial uh, reg perspective, um, who who can he get through in a Democrat-controlled Senate that he wouldn't be able to get through in, in a Republican? And presumably, we're talking now about names that uh, we haven't mentioned yet, or do you feel like any of the high-profile, high what seemed to you and me to be playing it straight down the middle, suggested appointments um, could could face a Republican challenge? I'm not really seeing any names so far that particularly controversial. Um, and, and, and I think it's worth mentioning also that there are there are a few remaining Republicans who are fairly moderate and mm-hmm. who believe in the old proposition that a president should have um, the leeway to appoint the people he wants. Um, to run the administration. So I, I don't think you're going to see Collins and, and, and Romney be particularly um, difficult to deal with so long as the nominees are not way out there. Mm-hmm. But I think around the margins, that's the importance. And of course, the other thing which, you know, which I can also talk about in the context of the House, they'll run the agenda. They will run who has, you know, the committees, the, uh, the hearings. It will set a narrative, a tone that may not end up in legislation, but is nevertheless important. 
And you see that in the House, and you've seen that in the House the last four years, where or the last couple of years, where the House agenda is run by the um, in, in the House Financial Services Committee by Maxine Waters. Mm-hmm. So you'll see um, the the banking agencies, the SEC, get called up over and over and over, and you know, they'll focus on the topics that they want to focus on. I think that 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 can happen in the Senate as well. So again, that narrative is important, yeah. uh, even if it doesn't end up in legislation. As far as hearings and, like you said, the general thrust of legislative activity, even if it doesn't result in uh, signed in, in, in bills that head to the White House. Um, right. Maybe just so, digging in, a, oh, sorry, um, digging in a little bit more on the House side of things. Um, do you, since I guess we are predicting stuff, another one that I don't know if we've seen truly shake out is is how the changed uh, nature of the Democratic caucus will impact um, uh, leadership positions. But I suppose traditionally when a party holds the House, everyone stays in their posts. Um, do you have any reason to think that's not going to be the case or that the general tone from, from that leadership group would change due to the um, shrinking margins. And I, and I think it's fair to say um, a centrist push from, from people um, like uh, yes. I was born, I was born in Connor Lamb's district. So I, I understand the, the uh, well, it, it's fascinating. Um, the, the numbers are way down. Um, the uh, leadership is, is remaining in place. Mm-hmm. To me, the most interesting thing to follow is what happens in the redistricting that's coming out of the 2020 census. Mm-hmm. One thing we haven't mentioned is the Democrats did way worse down down ballot in the state level than they were predicting. They were hoping to turn a number of, uh, of uh, legislate, legislative bodies, which is crucial in the redistricting that's going to happen they will have it looks at mo- like at most a five member majority this year and if you look at 2020 and the likely redistricting just on a modest basis it's going to be very very difficult for them to hold the house mm-hmm. in 2020 so you may have this weird situation where the senate flips to the Democrats in 2022 and the House flips to the, the Republicans in 2022. Um, and I think it's going to be very difficult for both President-elect Biden and Nancy Pelosi to manage the conflict between the progressive wing and the moderates. Mm-hmm. And um, that's going to be very interesting to watch. For um, sure. You know, what it means, again, bringing it down to our topic, what it means in the House um, is you're going to have fewer Democrats on the House Financial Services Committee compared to last time. Mm-hmm. Um, but they still... Leadership still, yeah. The, the committee, Maxine Waters, will set the agenda. Nothing will really change. They'll probably push out bills and mark them up and, and, and maybe even get them passed in the House. They, those bills will be DOA when they get to the Senate, even in, 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 in my view, if it's a, a Senate controlled by the, by the uh, Democrats, with the possible exception of bankruptcy, which we can talk about a little bit later. Yeah, and then I guess just to, to get down your list of, um, because I, I do want to get through everything and all of this is super interesting, um, to get through your list of where we should be looking, um, as far as administrative agencies and then, um, you know, leadership of, and then their, their pure sort of administrative action, um, decision-making, sort of run-of-the-mill Washington stuff that happens year in and year out, um, where where are you looking at changes and continuity, and, and what's most interesting to you about that level of government government right now? And and that's a really important question because in the absence of legislation, 
which I which is it is really where I come out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the only tool left is the administrative state. Right. So so the question is, what can you do, and how can you do it? Um, we don't know yet who President-elect Biden is going to um, select for the SEC. Um, and, and that's interesting, but we, I, I don't really have a good view and I've spoken to a bunch of people and they don't. Yeah. Um, the banking agencies are really interesting um, because you have a situation, of, of, a very weird situation in the controller, at the control of the currency right now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Brian Brooks is the acting control of the currency and he's just been nominated to become the controller of the currency, even though he's a Trump appointee. Mm -hmm. And McConnell can ram that through. And that would be a weird situation that you have in the last month of the administration, a a, a Republican controller being appointed. Is that a term? uh, term No, that he he, he could be replaced. You know, um, uh, that's an executive position. So that uh, the controller reports to the Treasury that he could be replaced and probably will be. It's just weird, but 2020 is weird. So it kind of fits. I wonder how much you think, I mean, we are talking about Joe Biden, who is a quintessential Delaware um, politician, Amtrak trained to Washington and everything, and, and certainly been deeply involved in the issues that matter to Delaware, which are the issues that matter to your members and the, the people who listen to this. So do you think that Joe Biden has a deeper sense of, I, it doesn't seem like these appointments are getting much attention early on, but I would also tend to believe that Joe Biden knows the cast of characters that could go pretty deep into these positions fairly well from his sort of legislative life. I guess that was a decade ago or more now. Um, so maybe generationally it's changed, but I'm wondering how much do you think that Joe Biden's personal history in, in these matters is going to impact some of these appointments? He, I think the evidence so far is he's picking people he knows and is very close to. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at his transition team, there are people you know who he's known for a long time. His chief of staff are, you know, those are people that he's he's worked with for for decades. So I expect to see the same type of thing um, in the political appointments. The banking, the banking situation is weird because you've got um, at the FDIC Elena McWilliams, whose term doesn't end until 2023, um, and she may stay around. Um, uh, another Trump appointee. You've got at the Fed Randy Quarles as the vice chairman, um, his term is, is, goes way out, but his, his, um, his term as the regulatory czar doesn't end until mid 2021. Yeah. So where you normally expect to see some movement on, you know, perhaps on the banking agencies, um, the fact that they're still around and the and the you know Brian Brooks situation calls that into question. It's really interesting, uh, and and I don't know how that's going going to play out, uh, and and whether Quarles will stay around or even McWilliams will stay around. Um, so that that's something interesting to uh, follow as well. Be, uh, before I turn it back over to Sarah, um, do do you have any thoughts on the CFPB, sort of the Lucy and the football of? Uh... Of, of, regu- of banking regulation in the um, past couple cycles, um, I, 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 I have I, I was just one. I don't really know what the conversation is like as far as I know. Certainly, what happened there through the Trump administration, but I don't know if there's a, a, an agenda to revive it or to bring it back into some. Oh yeah, it's a very strong agenda. Uh-huh. Um, there, there are some constitutional issues. Um, and I, going back to the Senate again, I think where the rubber hits the road on the confirmation process is probably going to be focused on CFPB because um, that's really where there's a very big difference between the Democrats and the Republicans and their view of what that 
um, of what that uh, uh, what what, they, what the CFPB should be doing. Not easy being a new agency, I guess. Um, no, and it's and it's very controversial, and 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 ideologically, there's a very big difference. As far as uh, constitutional issues, uh, you you mean the appointments clause stuff, or even for further from that? Well, again, the, I think you know, the, stuff is sorting itself out. Yeah, I mean that is sorting itself out, but you know the question of whether it has to be set up more like an SEC mm. rather than uh, you know a commissioner who who doesn't really report to anyone. Further, so actual structural reform in the way it's yeah. set up. So. Elliot, what happens to the Volcker rule reforms? Okay, so a little bit of background. Um, the Volcker rule was reformed this past year um, to, again, because it's all about us in the low market, to permit CLO managers to have buckets of non-loans and still um, not be afoul of the Volcker rule. Um, uh, again, without going into a tremendous amount of detail about why that is, that's the reality. The, 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 the reforms now permit CLO managers to do that. And that's very helpful, um, generally gives them flex- flexibility. And in the environment that we're in, in the loan market, where you've, um, where you've got a lot of these uh, uh, liability uh, uh, management um, schemes, it gives CLOs more flexibility to engage in them and to participate in those. So th- that's a really important, that's become a really impo- important reform. There's something called the Congressional Review Act, which allows Congress to void any new regulation within a certain period of time. It takes a 50% vote in the House and the Senate and the presidential signature. One of our biggest concerns by far going into this election was had the blue wave happened, you could have seen a scenario where the Volcker rule would have been eligible to be voided under the Congressional Review Act. Um, and that would have been the end of those positive reforms. Um, it only take, even without the filibuster going away, the Congressional Review Act only takes a 50% vote. So we think that's off the table. Even in a scenario where you have a Democrat-controlled Senate. In theory, you could still get that done. We don't think it rises to the level of importance that in a 50-50 environment, it really gets taken up. So that's good news. Um, in the in the context of Volcker. Interesting. So do you think, does risk retention come back for CLO managers under this administration? Um, again, I think the answer is no. And, and, and the reason it's no is, is, you know, why are we even talking about this? So Senator Warren proposed this, this year, this past year, um, legislation called, you know, I love the name, Stop Wall Street Looting Act. Um, in that bill, there's a bunch of bankruptcy reform stuff, um, other stuff, and a very small provision that essentially undoes the LSTA's litigation victory on risk retention from a couple of years ago. And it specifically requires risk retention by CLO managers of 5%. So again, that was something we were very focused on. Um, pretty much off the table. Got it. Um, so do you think, do you think um, there will be much focus on uh, private lending and, and non-bank lenders under this administration? So that's really one of the most interesting questions remaining. Um, The banking agencies are very aware that there's this huge market, growing market, over which they have no control, no direct control. I don't want to, I think it's overstating it to say they have no control. They have control over the banks that lend to the private lenders. So they have, you know, they have their transparency is through the banks that 
provide financing to the private lenders, but that's where it ends. Um, that concerns them, and you see you see a lot of press about that. Um, even you know hearings at the on the Hill about that. The question again is, will Congress be able to pass anything? Because that's what it will require to regulate that industry. It's really hard to see that in an environment that we're anticipating. Do the agencies have any way of making inroads on that market? Again, it's really hard to see. Um, could this be a populist, one of those rare populist issues that you can get a bipartisan um, take, um, uh, you know, where, where both the Democrats and Republicans think this is, is not a good thing, that this market goes unregulated? It's possible, but I'm kind of doubtful. Elliot, I wanted to jump in again. Uh, this is Jason and just turn back to, I guess, my um, uh, bankruptcy nerd interest, which is uh, pure bankruptcy reform. Um, I was looking at uh, what's lingering and there's uh, HR 7370, which is sort of executive pay um, and, and other uh, provisions that would kind of write into the code um, restrictions on on executive pay, and then there's HR forty four twenty one, which was a I think the latest in the long running. There's always seems to be a venue reform bill um, in Congress in some form or another. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to generally where you see bankruptcy reform taking bankruptcy reform taking place, if at all, um, and and then also between those bills or any others that you have on your uh, on your radar. Sure. Um, bankruptcy reform is very interesting because it is one of those areas that tends to be more populist and bipartisan. Here's the scenario that I worry about or I think about. I think that if any area is open to sort of a bipartisan solution, it could be consumer bankruptcy right. reform. That tends to be populist. Mm -hmm. Once you have a consumer bankruptcy bill, bankruptcy bills tend to be rare, but they tend to be big and they tend to be sort of Christmas trees on which you hang ornaments. Um, a, I, I could see a scenario potentially where a consumer bankruptcy bill gets some um, legs and then it morphs into some provisions of um, uh, chapter 11 banks you've reformed and I think if you want to look at again from a populist perspective mm -hmm. every day we read about these bonuses that executives get five minutes before they file for bankruptcy and that's really getting a lot of traction on Capitol Hill it's getting tra traction in the newspapers and it's getting traction on Capitol Hill. Um, and people rightfully don't like it. Um, that could be a springboard. And that's really in HR 7370. It's in the Stop Wall Street looting bill. Mm -hmm. That could be a place to start. Um, and and by, by action on that front, it would be... be prohibitions on payments or elevations of, of, of sort of more junior employees rights or, or, or all of the so above? There's, so there's two elements. The, the, the executive comp is already built into the bankruptcy code. Sure. And so what they've done, what companies have done to get around that is to make it, to, is to make those payments right before filing. You could see legislation that would address that as a, as a you know, a, a, a as a preference, you know, fraudulent conveyance, something like that. Um, on the more uh, labor-oriented uh, aspects of bankruptcy reform, which is what HR seventy three seventy mainly about, mm -hmm. is it would privilege um, employee claims, severance, um, things like that, uh, uh, 
pension pension uh, benefits over senior secure credit credit by making it making those administrative claims. Um, those are some of the things that you're seeing in those bills, um, and you know potentially that could get some. Uh, uh, and would that be? I mean, I know exactly what you're saying that these things tend to start in the consumer side and and as a chapter 11 person i usually shrug it off um where do these sorts of things that are still basically in the consumer populist uh, consumer slash populist world of bankruptcy reform start to get the lsta's um attention or intervention um or concern uh well we all we're always concerned about about the bankruptcy code we're, we're always looking at it mm-hmm. um if you look at the amicus litigation that we've typically done, mm-hmm. it's almost all bankruptcy related, and it almost all goes to the absolute priority rule and the rights of secure creditors. So we're always looking at it. Um, I, I think it's premature to worry about it, um, and you know we'd have to see the uh, the details of the bills as yeah. as they move forward, and then we would take a position. And I, I suppose uh, when it comes to pension liabilities, the devil really, really is in the details because you can go from a few million dollars to hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, That's exactly with a, right. With a few word changes as to what you're talking about. And the, there's the astronomical zeros at the end of some of those. Uh, yeah. Claims. And, and what tends to happen in, 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 look, just to be clear, really bad stuff happens in bankruptcy to employees. And, and pension benefits. You know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting otherwise. The question is, is, is it in the bankruptcy code where you fix that stuff, right? Or do you have to fix ERISA? And that's fundamentally the question. Yeah. Um, and you know, we we would argue that it's certainly not in the bankruptcy code that this needs to be fixed. You know, you shouldn't have unfunded pensions um, with the numbers that you see. Um, and and you shouldn't have to fix that in bankruptcy. Um, that, that's really the our, our view. Um, but but you're exactly right. There are already in the bankruptcy code carve outs for for things like employee benefits. Um, you know, but they're they're minor. They're 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 modest. Um, so that's you're exactly right. The detail the the, the devil is in the details. And, uh, yeah, the I mean it, it would be. Uh cruel justice or whatever if uh, pensions were addressed this way and not something more direct to the PBGC and their massive underfunding. Um, Well, you had mentioned the LSTA's um, amicus litigation. I I know I was thinking back this year um, and it seemed to me like Millennium Millennium Health and the the revisiting of, of whether loans or securities um, was was a major victory. Um, would that be in, in 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 what you would you look back at this year? And, and do you see any any further action on that front, or is that going to be quiet for another, you know, so many years as as it was the last time that came up? So that decision, if I recall correctly, it seems like five years ago, but it was actually I think only in February. Yeah, right and before I, I, the. Uh, Checking now to make sure I didn't. It wasn't. You know, time is a circle, but I think it was this year. Yeah, and it, it, it doesn't seem that way. But um, so um, let's start with the Kirshner case itself. Um, the uh, the the uh, where where that stands now is that um, there's been a lot of motion practice and. Uh, all of it on the fraud claims um, by the litigation trust against J.P. Morgan. And really, they're holding the securities law claim in abeyance. They have not and cannot appeal that to the Court of Appeals until everything else gets resolved. So that's just off on the side. And that could literally take years. Um, To the question of so it's not it's not dead it's not dead because that appeal hasn't happened um, they've reserved they preserved something i missed the timing on it so yeah they've reserved the right to appeal the securities law claim but they can't as a as a as a technical matter bring that until everything else was resolved and that that could take a very long time so that's kind of 
off on the side. What you could certainly see in, again, in the context of a high default rate and, you know, companies um, going into bankruptcy and perhaps losing a lot of money is a similar claim from another litigation trustee. Um, and that's why this is not certainly not off the table. Um, the, the more defaults you have, th- these things happen in the context of default, obviously. When people, when, when, when lenders lose money, and typically when they lose a lot of money. Um, so you could see, you could certainly see someone pleading uh, these claims again. I think the Kirshner decision was very helpful, um, but it's not dispositive. It's one district court and that's all. So we could certainly see this in, 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 uh, in another case. Okay, well, thank you so much, Elliot. Uh, I had one more question um, that you, your comment now just made me think of. In the sort of nascent student loan forgiveness debate that we're seeing happening in Twitter and sort of in, in policy circles, there's, I heard uh, cancellation of debt income come up. Um, do you think there's any way that that could impact the lending markets and that Cody for lend for, for lenders or is this just is this a, a purely consumer um, uh, uh, student loan unique unicorn? Um, no, it, it, we had this issue back in the in the beginning of the financial crisis mm-hmm. and there was legislation that deferred Cody. The legislation first um, uh, the, the legislation first focused on bonds only, did not include the loan market. Yep. And we, we, one of the first things I did um, on Capitol Hill and was go to Treasury and the IRS and then Congress to try to get loans included. Hmm. It's actually one of the more interesting stories. It wasn't in the House bill. It wasn't in the Senate bill, hmm. but it got stuck in in conference. And we got loans excluded from Cody, but yeah, interesting. So yeah, just just to back up, I guess the, the 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 reason I mentioned it is that there's been a lot of talk of the a sort of presidential unilateral power to forgive student loan debt, and whether that's a you know good policy or not. But one of the stumbling blocks was that that would result in huge Cody bill, tax bills for the for the student for the individuals whose loans were forgiven so um but you're saying that somehow that that if that's resolved in agency action or, or, or in some sort of bill it could creep into broader markets beyond well, cody it, 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 it the, the way it works and i haven't looked at this in a very long time but as i recall if you if you just simply do an amendment of a credit agreement and the price of the loan is is significantly low that creates a tax event Hmm. Without Cody relief, I thought it had. I th- oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. I, I'm, this is where I think we're both not tax lawyers, so I, I get out of my depth really quickly. Um, Sarah, I don't know if you want to say anything, but thank you so much, um, Elliot, for joining us. It's been super interesting. My yeah. pleasure. Anytime. Thank you, Elliot. Thank you, Jason. Thanks again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. As always, you can find all of our podcasts on the site media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. We hope your families are healthy and safe, and we will see you in a week.